Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, September 3rd, we are studying Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. The prophet concludes his psalm and his book with a joyful confession of faith in the Lord's power to save his people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. Dr. Teets serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Oh man, it's fun, and thanks for bringing me back to Habakkuk. This is just one of those absolutely marvelous books of the Old Testament that most of us kind of ignore. Well, there's that one verse in chapter two that we know well because Paul quotes it in Romans chapter one. And actually, you know, there's a couple of quotations from Habakkuk one as well. Habakkuk one five we discovered was also quoted in the book of Acts. So it's it's not absent from New Testament theology, but it is a short book. It's he's one of the minor prophets. It can be easy to skip over him when you're flipping through the the pages of the Old Testament, and he doesn't show up a ton in the lectionary, but he's he's there at least once. So with the prophet Habakkuk. We've got the very last part of the book today, just the last four verses. What's Habakkuk been doing? What are the themes that he talks about, the the conversation he has with the Lord? What do we need to know that we're going to see him kind of bring together here in this last text? Yeah, because yeah, starting really at verse 16, this is that, that great moment where Habakkuk kind of takes a deep breath. And I mean, we'll see the language in 16. He, he definitely has this moment of, oh, here's what's been going on. But what I, what I love about this book, and why it's a book that I continue to just look forward to teaching, is that it is that back and forth of Habakkuk being able to have that really honest conversation with God. I mean, you started to look at that language, especially way back forever ago now in, he, in Habakkuk 1, is that Habakkuk doesn't pull any punches in this. And that's what I love about how, how he complains. And he never is accused of sinning, even though at times thinking back to parts of Habakkuk 1, he, he really goes after God and says, look, God, you are you're unfair. You, you are, you're a God who doesn't hear, which means you're no better than an idol for that matter. And just that strong language, God's response, and in that dialogue, Habakkuk is able to really be that, be that person who lives by faith and what it even looks like. So, I mean, and I think that that verse, that live by faith verse in, in Habakkuk 2.4 really is is what we're seeing here in Habakkuk 3, that the, the prophet, even with all that strong language, that through that back and forth with God, through that very act of what you might say is, you know, lamenting or complaining even, that, that Habakkuk has been brought by the Lord through the word of the Lord to the point where he's able to, to speak the words of this psalm, which certainly have a you know, a, a much more, I don't know, confident tone than maybe the questioning that was in, in chapter one. I mean, Habakkuk's really been, he's been brought quite a ways, it seems, from where he was in chapter one to where we're hearing him pray now in chapter three. Yeah, you, you probably should get a personal injury lawyer to sponsor this program because the amount of whiplash that Habakkuk puts you through is actually kind of nuts. Because, yeah, I mean, it's back and forth. 
and the man of faith is the one who who does well, voices concerns to God boldly, and that's Habakkuk Habakkuk one. But yeah, through all of this, he gets brought back to this to this attitude of faith that is able to accept what's going to come, even though it's still pretty darn awful. As I was reflecting on the book of Habakkuk as a whole, we're here at Grace, we're studying the book of Psalms right now in Sunday morning Bible class, and we did Psalm 13 not that long ago. And, and Psalm 13 starts very similarly to the book of Habakkuk. And actually, as, as we're reflecting on it, Psalm 13 is almost like a miniature version of Habakkuk. It seems like Habakkuk kind of expands on on Psalm 13, at least the beginning and the end. You know, in Psalm 13, you have the opening, the protest that's there where the Psalm David asks, how long, O Lord, much like Habakkuk does. But by the end of Psalm 13, which is only six verses long, David's saying, you know, I've trusted in your steadfast love. I rejoice. I'll sing to the Lord. And, and it's like Habakkuk is that same movement but he he expands it more. You get to see a little bit more of the back and the forth that that's there. That's maybe not there in Psalm 13. I, I told the Bible class that I, I love Psalm 13 because it is just so compact, and you don't always get mm-hmm. to see the full process. And that's that's kind of nice on the on the one hand, just to know how the Lord works. Here in Habakkuk, you you get to see more of the picture, and I think that's just as helpful, you know, to encourage that kind of prayer and then trust in the Lord. So I mean that. I don't know. Those two things in my mind, as I was preparing for our conversation, really, I was putting those two things together and I, I saw them having a similar trajectory. Yeah. And that's where in Psalm, 20, Psalm 13 is is just an absolute gem. And one of the problems that, run, that you run into in a Psalm 13 or even pick a, pick a bigger lament, like say, we'll go with the oldie and the goodie Psalm 22, mm. is that the challenge is always, how do you get from that severe accusations against God, uh, questioning God, however you want to phrase that. And then suddenly this, suddenly this psalmist is, <laughs> is in a good mood, or at least he's right. able to, to see, to seem, uh, it almost has this Pollyanna moment. And uh, I still remember a congregation member at a church I served at back in Chicago uh, more than a few lifetimes ago. Her, I was teaching, I forget, one of these psalms, and she comes up to me and Pastor Teets, I hate laments. And the moment you hear language like hate from a congregation member, you have that that pause moment. And I'm like, okay. And I had my pastoral panic moment of what's going on here. And her and the reason, and I'm like, so say more about it. She's like, I hate how they go from being so upset to having their Pollyanna moment because it just doesn't seem real. And what's great about our journey of faith is that we don't know how we get from these cries of despair to, to confident faith, or to at least faith that's at peace with what's going on. And you're right, Habakkuk at least gives us a little, a little bit more of a sense of the journey, as opposed to Psalm 13, which is subtly, he, he turned his frown upside down, and you don't quite know how he got there. Yeah. But that's part of the journey of these, where we as hearers, as we pray these, our own journey won't be the same as David in Psalm 13, but we are able to move from, from lament to at least peace, uh, joy, yes. Happiness, maybe not. Now, Habakkuk, this is the third chapter of Habakkuk, is a prayer. We, we called it a psalm in yesterday's show in the first 15 verses. What, I mean, would you classify, I mean, we've been talking about the book as a whole, I suppose, but the psalm that we're talking about in chapter three, would you classify it as a, a lament or is there, I mean, how does it compare to, say, some of the psalms that, that we've got in the book of psalms? Okay, first of all, 
my thanks to whoever covered these first 15 verses of Habakkuk 3. Uh, when I hear Habakkuk 3, and I, I teach this book actually on a pretty regular basis here at the seminary, uh, the moment I hear Habakkuk 3, I actually go into sli- oh, a slight panic attack. Uh, the first part, these first 15 verses that I'm so glad somebody else covered, uh, for purely selfish standpoint, they're some of the hardest Hebrew of the entire Bible. A uh, degree of difficulty of, is off the charts, and, and I deal with Isaiah for a living. It's <laughs> really tough Hebrew. Uh, but it really is, it's a psalm, I would call it a psalm of, of hope, a psalm of praise, and also a psalm of perspective. Namely, here's the God who is mighty to save, and you cannot stop his salvation. Even as he, oh, what, tramples upon the rivers, and you have that just rich language throughout these first 15 verses. Yeah, doctor, it was Dr. Reed Lessing who covered the first 15 verses, and, and he mentioned the same Ooh. thing to me about, about, the, <laughs> about the, the Hebrew of Habakkuk 3 being very difficult. He, he had that same, same memory as well. So, okay. So. okay, good. I'm I, I, I in good company, because honestly, when I, when I see uh, the last time I taught Habakkuk, which is actually this past winter, I make students do presentations, and I was so thankful that a student, against my better advice, volunteered to teach Habakkuk 3. I was more than happy to let him struggle because the language it's the, yeah, the the language there is extremely difficult. So we were dealing with with Hebrew poetry and you, you mentioned to me earlier that that you love Hebrew poetry and we we've, we've talked about this uh, several times on Sharper Iron because we we deal with poetic sections a lot particularly in the prophets but I think it's always a helpful reminder because Hebrew poetry doesn't work on the same with the same ways as English poetry does. So as we read, you know, Hebrew poetry, even just these four verses, what are some of the things we need to be looking for? What kind of features make Hebrew poetry go? Oh, oh, the good news is we don't have to worry about rhyme or rhythm, which is somebody who can never scan a poem to save his life back in high school makes, makes me feel a deep sigh of relief. Probably the biggest characteristic of it is its terseness. It's short. So you and I were quipping before I came on the show that I'm not used to dealing with Hebrew prose because it has too many words, as opposed to oftentimes three or four words, extremely terse. And, it, and that's part of its power, because we as hearers, are, it draws us into to the imagery, which, are, which I would also say is the other major characteristic of this, this, this use of big, bold imagery. Uh, there's nothing understated about Hebrew poetry. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the classics on Hebrew poetry, uh, they list all these great poetic devices, and then they get to understatement, and they, it, it's the shortest entry in the entire book. Uh, namely, Hebrew never figured out understatement. Here's one half of a possible example. But just this over-the-top, vivid imagery. And along those lines, we have the classic parallel, parallelism. How do these two half-lines relate to each other? But it's, it's powers in these images and, and, it's, and that terseness that really we as hearers are invited to savor and slow down. You can't read Hebrew poetry quickly. Instead, you slow down and savor it. Yeah, well, I, I talked to Dr. Paul Robbie about the book of Obadiah recently, and, and he said the same thing about Hebrew poetry, that you really have to slow down, really dig into the, the images that are there. It's not meant to be read fast, but it is meant to be to savor it, as you, as you said. So that's what we're going to get to do with these last four verses of, of the book of Habakkuk. In terms of the, the images that we saw in yesterday's text, in the first 15 verses, what are some of, I mean, what, what was he doing in the first part of this psalm, and, and how is that going to connect to what we're going to read today? 
Okay, the first piece is it really is a oh Salma perspective, which I think I might have just oh, here I am on the air inventing new labels for Psalms, I guess. <laughs> where it is so much of a recounting of just the might and power of God. Lots of Exodus language, so thinking back to three verse five in particular, the pestilence that goes before him, the plague at his heels. And also recounting all of these major times in which God has put a stop to, to chaos and to evil. So the other image that I just absolutely love is verse 8, uh, the, the anchor against the rivers. And one of the toughest miracles that I always thought to preach on was Jesus walking on the water. I mean, it's, I mean some of the miracles are impressive. Walking in the water, for me, always seemed kind of anticlimactic. But when you think of Jesus walking on the water being a proclamation of God as the victor uh, over chaos, we actually see that language there, especially in verse 8. All right, so let's let's take a look then at the, the verses that, that we've got for today. This is Habakkuk 3, verses 16 to 19. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high, on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. That's the end of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3, verses 16 to 19. Uh, Dr. Teeth, let's, let's savor this Hebrew poetry today. You were talking earlier about the just the really big images. And, and I think that's how these verses start, where Habakkuk speaks about his body trembling and, and for example, rottenness entering into his bones. I mean, those are that's really vivid imagery. They're really big images. What What is Habakkuk, I mean, why is he feeling this way? What's he talking about here in this this physical description of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, you, you can almost hear Habakkuk here just taking this almost massive deep breath over everything that he's been through and this entire back and forth, throwing some woes for good measure into, and just the ups and downs of this entire thing. Say nothing of this vivid recounting of God's mighty works in 3, 1 to 15, is that he is taking a, just this big breath of air and is utterly shaken by everything that he finally realizes. So we go from something really simple to I've heard, okay, fair enough. But then his very being, his uh, beten would be the Hebrew word there, my very being, my very inmost being oh, is quaking. The the image of his it's almost oh, quite literally the language is his stomach is growling, which is oh so I guess what Habakkuk if you want to be really flippant Habakkuk has indigestion, but perhaps better yet seeing that he is completely overcome in awe of what it means to have a God who is mighty to save, even though bad stuff is going to happen. So so, so yeah, and really uh, yeah. Well, I mean, so, okay, that, that was going to be, you know, what, what is causing this reaction in him was one of the questions that I, that I was wondering about this. You know, what, what is it that's making his body tremble? Is it the thought of 
the Chaldeans coming and wreaking such havoc on the people of Judah of, of knowing that he's going to have to go through that. I mean, thinking through some of the, you know, we, we came out of the book of Jeremiah not long ago and, and some of the sufferings that Jeremiah describes that, you know, I mean, Habakkuk's told us about how bad the Chaldeans are. Is he upset? You know, is he, is he thinking about that? And that's why he's trembling. Is he, is he trembling at the thought? And I think that maybe this is more the direction you're taking us trembling at the thought of, of knowing that God is the creator of all things, the ruler over all things. He can use the Babylonians as he wills and just sort of marveling at all this causes this sort of reaction. That maybe sounds like more of the way that, that you're going, but that is one of the questions that, that I was wondering with this text. Can you dig yeah. into that a little bit more? Yeah, he's having his Job moment. And, and the book that yeah. really reads very beautifully with Habakkuk is the book of Job. Uh, again, uh, much longer. But in terms of, in one sense, there is the awe of who am I that God is still in charge, that God is still there. However, picking up on your earlier op- your observation, there's not only this sense of awe of realizing that God is God and Habakkuk's not, which is part of what this book is about, but there also is that way that verb ragaz there for what his bowels are doing. Uh, is that it also has that sense of absolute terror. And here it's not the fear of the Lord, it's not the the sense of awe that God is God and you're not, but also this absolute oh, absolute terror of what he knows is going to happen, and that there's no way that he's going to avoid these sufferings that, with the Chaldeans on the scene, are knocking, quite literally knocking on his doorstep. Well, I mean, I think that I do think that the fear of the Lord is is related, maybe not in the way that we we often use it in, in most of our speech, like with the catechism. But we talked a little bit about this yesterday in, in three verse two, you know, because Habakkuk brings up, you know, your work, O Lord, do I fear? And mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about that. You know, well, what like what does that mean for Habakkuk? And, and I think there's I mean, certainly, you know, God is God. Habakkuk is not recognizing his place before God is is always a part of the fear of the Lord. But I, I do think in the context of, of Habakkuk, knowing what's about to happen and knowing that the Lord is the one bringing all this about because he's God and Habakkuk's not, there is that, you know, fear and, and trembling and, and Habakkuk is, you know, feeling it quite literally in his own body at this moment. Yeah. And the language for his experience is actually pretty impressive. You start looking Start talking about how these images just almost trip over each other. We go from from his very inmost being is quaking the the ragaz word, but then then his lips. But then that that strange phrase that you pointed out as you were even reading it out loud, I had forgotten about it until I was reviewing this text. Is that whole notion of rot entering his bones, which is a very odd image. Uh, there uh, there are lots of there's lots of bone imagery in in the Bible. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but what does it mean to have his his uh, bones being rotten? And it's the sense of him really having nothing on his own other than God's mercy to depend upon. And thanks for bringing bringing us back to Habakkuk three verse two. And that's that's a, a Habakkuk three verse two is this great plea of okay, lots of wrath is coming, but don't forget that you are the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Mm-hmm. Don't forget your chesed. Don't forget your mercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really go. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, and Habakkuk can count on that, and he's still counting on it, and he's hanging on to it, even while the Babylonians are coming, and Habakkuk knows exactly who these people are, and they're absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Well, and I think, I mean, I really do think now that the more that I look at 3 verse 2 and compare that to 3.16, it, it does seem that, that that really is in view here again, which, I mean, that, that would be good Hebrew poetry, I suppose, to, to repeat mm-hmm. thoughts that, that have been brought up earlier and, and to have them come up again, that, that on the one hand, you know, Habakkuk knows that this wrath of God expressed through the Chaldeans is coming, and, and that causes him to tremble. And, and yet, he's, he concludes this verse, verse 16, with that note of hope of, of waiting quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us, which, I mean, that's, you know, looking, that's looking pretty far into the future there for Habakkuk, that, that waiting that he's talking about. You know, it's, it's not just waiting for, say, the trouble to be gone for the people of Israel, but it's ultimately waiting for that same trouble then to come upon the Chaldeans. I mean... I mean, again, there's that that Habakkuk two verse four, the righteous living by faith. Habakkuk is, I mean, he's he's putting that into practice. He's he's praying, I think, based on that verse, just in what we're seeing in in verse sixteen here. Yeah, and he knows that evil at the end of the day, even God's wrath, doesn't have the final word. And that actually harkens as we start wrapping up this book in these final four verses. It really goes back to those woes, which are the easiest part of Habakkuk to skip over. Uh, we got the dialogue at the beginning. That's fun. We got the righteous will live by his faith. Big deal. But then we go into the, that series of hoys, the series of woes. And Habakkuk is also, that's part of Habakkuk's uh, faith perspective he has, if you will. Knowing that at the end of the day, all of this evil, whether if it's the evil of his day or the coming, or the coming trouble of the Chaldeans, none of it will ultimately last. And that's why those woes really do help us understand really why he's able to have this perspective knowing that bad stuff is happening, but ultimately it's temporary. And that's where that language of hoy there that appears multiple times in chapter two is pretty important. Hmm. I think you, I think you said it this way, that, that Habakkuk knows even God's wrath doesn't have the last word. Did I catch that right? Yeah, this notion that at the end of the day, and i got to be careful how I nuance this, I realize. I've got to love uh, thinking out loud on occasion, is that at the end of the day, evil will be punished, and yeah. we have to be very and be very beautifully honest about that. Whenever we're talking about the eschatology of the Old Testament, uh, take a look at the final verse of Isaiah. It's the verse that the, that the lectionary omits. Why? Because we don't want to think about going to look at the punished ones. Uh, is that that the the trouble of Habakkuk's day, and that may be a better way to even phrase that, ultimately doesn't have the last word. Is that uh, Habakkuk is Habakkuk is the one who knows that God redeems him, God loves him, and God's going to preserve him along with the remnant, even while this remnant is going to be going through some really nasty stuff. Well, and and the way, and I appreciate the way you clarified that the the way that that you said it that you know about God's wrath not having the last word. Right. It, it brought it brought to mind, and I, I think I talked about this yesterday with Doctor Lessing as well in, in the Book of Lamentations. Where, where Jeremiah talks about that, that God does not, and I can't remember exactly how it's said, afflict his children from his heart. That, that when God's wrath does come, and Habakkuk knows that God's wrath upon the Judeans is coming, that he's not doing it as his last word for them. He's, he's not doing it because he wants to hurt them, but he's doing, them as a, you know, he's doing that as a father disciplines his children. And again, I think, I mean, it sounds like that faith... You know, that's expressed in the Book of Lamentations, is it play here for Habakkuk as well? 
Yeah, yeah, that's where yeah, you talk about Lamentations. Again, one of those books that we only know for one verse, A Great is Thy Faithfulness, right. <laughs> which is a very strange thing in Lamentations, given the fact that most of it is all about all the, all the bad stuff that's happening. And it's a very similar idea here in Habakkuk. Well, and I mean, the book of Lamentations has that one part, as we were talking earlier, you know, it's got that one part in the middle that's just so hopeful, and it's surrounded by Lamentations. And again, you're kind of wondering, well, where did that come from? And again, Habakkuk gives us more of the more of the story, I, I think. That what mm-hmm. one one thing that as I, I want to talk a little bit about here in verse 16 is the way that Habakkuk does pray here. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is, and we've talked a little bit about this in some other prophetic literature as well, but it's, it maybe strikes us as a bit strange. You know, why not just pray, I will wait quietly for the Lord to save us. Instead, he, he prays for, you know, he, he waits quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the invaders. Why Why does the Old Testament so often pray in that way? And, and how can we as Christians still make use of that kind of prayer today? Yeah, he could have said something a little bit nicer. Of, yeah, I want to use your language. Wouldn't have been nice if he had he said, oh, well, wait for God to redeem us, and let's not talk about what happens to, to, to the oppressor. Is that, and that's so much of what hope looks like. And when this gets into even notions of when you talk about God as a jealous God, which causes all kinds of, oh, speaking of bowels quaking, to use the language of Habakkuk, all kinds of heartburn, is this idea that in a, that we want evil to end. It's not our job to end it. We trust that God is the God who's going to do that. And that's what he's doing. He's not, there's no vigilanteism here in Habakkuk 3. There never is really vigilanteism in the Bible. But instead, it's this notion of as we experience persecution, as we experience suffering, uh, especially from the hands of others, we want that suffering to end. And, and that's the prayer, and Habakkuk gives us the words for it. And we see that it's Habakkuk is, like you said, by no means unique with that. So for us as Christians to pray that, I mean, maybe we say, you know, for praying, to pray that evil would end, that doesn't sound us. That doesn't sound strange, and 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 we should right. be be able to pray that because that is what we want God to do. We want Him to be just and righteous, to be who He is, because we know that when He is those things and when He does those things, it it will turn out well for us. That's that's precisely what we want. That's where His salvation is found, is in that justice and righteousness. And and, and we can pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking the end of Habakkuk 3 with Dr. Ryan Teets. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, September 3rd. We are studying Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 to 19 with the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. 
He's the Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and the Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, prior to the break, we were talking about verse 16, that last part where Habakkuk says he's going to wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the invaders. Tell you a little bit about the way that that prayer may strike us a bit unusual today, and yet it is a prayer that we need to pray that God would bring justice, that he would put an end to evil. One of the things that I I find helpful, at least in my own thinking about this, is that when I pray in that way, that I I should recognize that part of the evil God needs to put an end to is found within me. We talk about the the devil, the world, and our sinful nature as as our enemies. And so when I ask God, you know, to to put an end to evil, I think it helps, at least it helps me not to pray it with pride when I recognize part of that prayer is I'm asking God, deal with the evil that's inside me as well. And I think think that's another way, again, that maybe we can start making use of that prayer again as Christians. Yeah, and that's an important point that you make there, mostly because it's so much more enjoyable to pray that the evil outside ends, as opposed to the recognition that we ourselves are in desperate need of having that old Adam be, what, drowned daily? or depending minute by minute, second by second, Mm -hmm. and how that's also part of our prayer of, yeah, put the evil... The one thing what all Lutherans know is that we're poor, miserable sinners. And that constant, that, yeah, there is no room for pride here to think that we're somehow better. And this idea of, yeah, that we also need that evil, the old Adam or old Eve to be put to death constantly. Yeah, and, and certainly then to pray with boldness against those enemies of Christ and his church, because we know that those enemies would ally with our own sinful nature to wreak us great havoc. And so, I mean, to pray against those, uh, well, I mean, I think that's the way, you know, Luther talks in the, the third petition. We would pray for thy will be done. That's what we're praying, that God would not let those enemies have their way and that he would do his will because we know his will is good and gracious for us. And so, again, to, to pray that, that God would do his will and to put an end to evil, this is a prayer we should speak as Christians in faith that God will do so and, and bring about his good and gracious will. Any, any more comments there on verse 16, Dr. Teets? Yeah, and what's really important about this whole book and what we've just been talking about is that evil is not an abstraction, is that this takes evil and suffering very seriously. And that's what's liberating about Habakkuk, for that matter. There, there's, no, there's no rationalizing this away. Really awful stuff is coming that, he's begging, that he is begging for God to bring it into, knowing that God's going to bring it into it. You know, I, I think that's a, I think it's a really important point, that this is not, it's not rationalizing evil away, but it's taking it seriously. And then it's, it, it's taking it to the Lord, because it's when we try to rationalize evil away or, or deal with it outside of the way Habakkuk deals with it, that's when we run into all kinds of trouble, I think, when we, we try to, you know, sort of speak about evil theoretically. Habakkuk just handles it, takes it head on, but then he, he takes it to the Lord and, and puts it in the Lord's hands to deal with. And I think that's how Habakkuk can end up in the place that he does is because he, he's not theorizing about it or trying to be, you know, rationalize it. He's simply letting it be what it is and then taking that to the Lord and putting it in his hands. And again, I mean, I think that's where Habakkuk, as, just as a book as a whole and, and the way we see him ending, really stands as a, a great example for us as Christians today. Yeah, and that's where... I, and that's and back kind of one of your earlier questions, like kind of why, why Hebrew poetry and what does it do? The other thing that Hebrew poetry, and why so much of the biggest theology, theological stuff in the Old Testament all in poetry, is that this is not a bloodless abstraction here. 
I mean, this is, this speaks to the whole person, and that's so much of the power of all of these images. And we see that here just in verse 16. I mean, everything he everything about him that he thought he could count on. I mean, if you talk about the language of my bone that rot enters my bones, the bones. This is the this is the part that always lasts. This is the the strength of the human. Even that cannot stand up. And how there is this really important emotional quality to poetry. I mean, the example I use when I teach is. It's one thing to say God is love. True statement. It's quite another thing to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, etc., and, and go down Psalm 23. Hmm. In some ways, they both, in terms of content, are the same way. But man, let me tell you, savoring those images of a shepherd, or in this case, not quite so positive, the images of, wow, of his absolute uh, astoundedness, however we want to deal, uh, try to capture 316 of Habakkuk, but it does speak to us as a whole person, not just some bloodless abstraction. Mm. And that's why that's why I just love being able to talk to to work in in poetry. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, with a verse like Habakkuk three sixteen, it's it's much easier to put yourself in the shoes of Habakkuk there, anticipating the arrival of the Chaldeans on the horizon. I mean, that, that you you can feel that, and there's there's something to that to to be able to you know, and that's what as you said, poetry is so great at doing for us is to put us in that situation so that you know that we can be there with the prophet feeling what he's feeling and and not just the the feeling of course but then the the faith that that ends up trumping whatever the feeling is you know this this faith that Habakkuk expresses in verse 16 it's it's simply marvelous so the the text can yeah, go, go ahead good this, this is a book where you can hear where you can hear the uh, hoofbeats of the Chaldeans coming at Jerusalem in chapter 1 you can hear all of this it's you can and you can look with horror with Habakkuk over all the stuff that's going on, mm. and then then you move down and then here we get to this wonderful, this wonderful deep breath of a conclusion. These final four verses, mm. yeah, and and the hope really comes through, and and the hope comes through even in the midst of of all these things happening. So in in verse sixteen, you know Habakkuk is is feeling it within himself; his own body is wasting away. And now in verse seventeen, it looks like it sounds like he's he's looking upon the land, and he he sees a similar thing happening in the land wasting away. So, and you you know you mentioned earlier that Habakkuk three really draws an Exodus imagery, and I was going to ask you if if it comes up in in this section as well because it certainly is is easy to see in the first fifteen verses. I think this verse is some Exodus imagery as well. It sounds to me like he's he's drawing on some of the descriptions of the promised land. And and that those yeah. things aren't happening now. Go ahead. Yeah, he's uh, drawing upon heavily the great theologian of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, yeah. where Moses talks about his blessings and curses, and he's describing the curses that are coming. Where you talk about Deuteronomy, a book that I'm uh, one of those really wonderful books to work through, and about all of these blessings of the promised land land are going to are going away, and he's very upfront here in verse seventeen. So take us into to some of the imagery that that's given here. I mean, let's let's savor this part of the poetry as well. Okay, and it all, it involves food, which is even better. So I, I'm a big fan of verse 17. <laughs> is that we move in this and the movement here? And you talk about uh, Hebrew parallelism. Each word, each phrase modifies the previous one. Is he goes from something that's a pretty nice a, a fig tree, a little bit better than fig newtons, perhaps or the version of figs that I was fed as a child. But the fig tree is, is a nice image. It gives its fruit in its season. But at the end of the day, 
if uh, fig trees, heaven forbid, were to become extinct, the world would go on. And even for Habakkuk's hearers, uh, the fig trees are nice. They're a, they're, they give you something that's, they give you a luxury item, if you will. But, but at the end of the day, okay, fig, fig trees uh, failing, okay, we can get over it. But then each one of these he moves into, each one becomes more significant in terms of the loss. So he starts out with a pretty, a loss that is, at the end of the day, not that big of a deal. It's, it's bad, but it's, it could be a heck of a lot worse. And then we go into the next image. So we go from the figs to the vines. And now suddenly he, his faith statement becomes really much more profound. When we talk about vine imagery, we're still dealing with a with part of Israelite uh, agriculture that is not super essential. You can live without vines. But when you talk about wine imagery in the Bible, this is, this is, this is such a massively significant image throughout a good chunk of the, chunk of the Bible. Mm. Namely, uh, wine is connected with uh, celebration, feasting, and salvation. Uh, if you, uh, and I, I'm, I'm in northeast Indiana, we theoretically have uh, vineyards, but I know my hearers in California will probably be scoffing right now as well. They probably <laughs> should. <laughs> you don't wake up some morning to say, I'm going to start a vineyard. So I've been told. Uh, instead, this is the stuff that relies upon peace to even have a vineyard mm. in, a special, in a special location. Yeah. So now this loss of of peace, this loss of the stuff of celebration, which is what wine is always connected with in the Bible. Mm. Uh, this is not your everyday drink, e- even in the Old Testament. Uh, instead, it's very much this, this stuff of celebration. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about this. Dr. Lessing said Hebrew poetry often uses repetition with intensity. So, I mean, so you, you're mm-hmm. seeing that intensification here. And even, you know, with the fig tree, if the fig tree shouldn't blossom, and then that moves to the fruit. Yep. So not only the, the fig to the grape and the, the vineyard, but the mm-hmm. blossom to the fruit is happening as well. How about as the as the poem continues there with the, the olive, the fields, and so forth? Yeah. And now it starts getting intense. Okay. Fig trees... Okay, that's fig tree vine. We get that, and now suddenly we go into the life essentials for the for the last part of this mm. verse. Uh, for for us, at least for most of us, uh, we probably don't realize the significance of olive trees. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of olives on my pizza. Don't get me wrong, and yes, I have olive oil in my pantry. But when you're talking this language of the olive crop, and you and you and not only. It's not yielding its fruit. It's absolutely failed. I mean, it's it's a much more intense even verb connected to it. Is that now we're getting into the stuff that daily life depends upon? Uh, olive oil is the stuff that you light your lamps with. It is it is now life essential, and and that nice little peel of kahash there, uh, the, the intensification of, of the Hebrew, even if that's completely gone. And then we go, and then it just even each one of these, it's a everyone's a step down as we look at this verse. So olive tree, and then finally we get to uh, fields, sheep, and cattle. And everything that life depends upon, even if all of these are gone, and and it, that climax there, yeah, no cattle. So we go from uh, no fields, no sheep, no cattle. And at this point, we even if we lose everything, is what Habakkuk is saying, but you'll notice that 
he takes a lot of words to get there, and that's part of the power here. This is this massive climactic confession of faith here at the tail end of Habakkuk 3. I mean, he, he's not, he could simply say, even if we lost everything, he could say that. And in some ways, the content wouldn't matter. But instead, he slows down, and he kind of rattles off, okay, if we lose a luxury item, if we lose an item of celebration, ooh, if we lose, even if we lose all of our essentials, and he draws us into this powerful faith statement now that'll hit us in verse 18. Well, I mean, so he, it's, it's been a personal thing for him in verse 16, and now it's becoming a national thing or a community-wide thing here in verse 17. This isn't just going to have, affect Habakkuk. It's going to affect his whole, his whole homeland. And, and then you know, get, yeah, here comes the faith statement, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Just as a, you know, as, as you're talking through the the list there in verse 17 and then how it comes, I mean, this is, it reminds me a lot of the way Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, ends, where you know, he taught, you know, take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife. Now, maybe that's, that's, here we are with the rhyme in English poetry. That's why it's arranged the way it is. <laughs> but, but I mean, the, the same no, idea. No language is perfect. That's right. Yeah. The same, the same idea there though, that, you know, I mean, here's, here's everything that could be taken away from me. And, and yet they've, they've not won anything. The victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth as, as Luther's hymn goes. And, and here, you know, Habakkuk says, like, even if all these things are gone, I'll still rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. How, how can Habakkuk say such a bold thing there in verse 18? And you even and you mentioned earlier, the oh, echoes of the Exodus. Habakkuk is now officially the opposite of the people in the wilderness. I mean, what was their complaint? <laughs> We're sick of this food. And he's saying, look, even if there's no food whatsoever, I'm going to still trust. He becomes this, this really almost, oh, flipping the, the imagery of the grumbling people on its head. Right, I mean, because this then, is... Yeah, then we get a, well, let's just say, I mean, then, not only is... He's not just saying, like, even though these things are gone, hey, I'm going to survive, but he says, I'm going to actually rejoice in this. I, that really is the opposite of the wandering, wilder, wandering Israelites. Yeah, it's really profound. And this is where, I mean, this is where I, I feel like I'm spoiled because I spend all my time in the biblical text. It's just the nature of what I, what I, what God has called me to do. Is I never quite saw that. I've looked at this text over and over again over the years. Is just how different he is during that wilderness generation. They, they are so upset that they're fed. They just don't. They just wish they had cucumbers, leeks, and melons. And instead, he's the exact opposite. Even if there's, even if there's no material reason to follow Yahweh, I'm going. I, I'm still going to rejoice. And that's where he and Job have a lot in common. Those two books really do, really do interact quite a bit. Tell, tell me more. How, how how do they interact? Tell me a little bit more about that. So if you think about the, I once when I taught Job back, I was did adjunct professor at Concordia Chicago. I taught Bible, which meant I teach the entire Bible in the semester. And I got to the book of Job, and I said, Oh, Job is a book about theodicy at which point a woman raised her hand and said, I didn't realize Homer wrote it. And I said, ooh, no, not the Odyssey, the Odyssey. <laughs> it, it, was, it was profoundly wrong, and just a great line that has now been retold more times than it should, is that the issue in Job isn't so much, why does evil happen? And that's not necessarily even the issue here in Habakkuk. It is, what is your motivation for trusting God? Do you trust God because of its... Uh, uh, 
because you're a good theologian of glory, or to use the language from a book, the Old Testament is dying, are you a happyologist? I'm going to follow Yahweh because Yahweh gives me good stuff in the here and now? Or do I trust God because God's God? And that's a very similar thing to what Job and both and now Habakkuk here are doing. Is that he's he's trusting Yahweh not he's trusting Yahweh because he knows that God is the God who saves. Uh, it has nothing to do with with his present suffering, because for Habakkuk, just like Job, the present suffering is unavoidable. Uh, he's he's stuck with it. I, th- I think I mean doesn't isn't that the question that the devil asks? at the very beginning of Job, does, does Job trust God for no reason? Like, does he trust God yeah. for nothing? And that, I think you're, and I think, I mean, I think that's a great connection there to the book of Habakkuk because, you know, will Habakkuk trust God because God gives him a good answer to the, or the, the answer that he wants to his question at the beginning, or will Habakkuk trust God for nothing simply because he's God. And, and here, I mean, that's the answer that Habakkuk gives. I, I trust God. I will even rejoice in him even when there's nothing. I mean, and I think, yeah, in that way, those those things are, are, I mean, it's the same question that's being answered and the same beautiful truth that's being given to us as Christians. Yeah, and it's not too trite to say that Habakkuk becomes a role model for, for us. In terms of what does it mean to live by faith? It, it means that you trust even when suffering is what you're going to be experiencing. And, and that's where 17 just becomes this beautiful image of losing everything, and, and you're, uh, the, the connection to the mighty fortress is, is perfect there, in spite of the fact that it's rhyme, but nothing's perfect, <laughs> is that there is this, this beauty of, okay, we may lose everything, but we're still God's people. God still takes care of us. And, and then we get into that. In verse 18, the English is, is, is nice. Uh, the Hebrew is even more emphatic. So if you're looking at verse 18... Uh, yeah, uh, Hebrew does a couple things going on there, and I'm trying to come up with a better way to translate it. Let's see, what, what did you say the ESV did? The ESV reads, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yeah, so probably a better way to even to even understand that. So what we're, what's going on there, for those of you keeping score at home Hebrew-wise, is that we have a redundant personal pronoun there. So Hebrew normally doesn't need to use the word I because the verb can do it. And plus we have Hebrew word order that's actually being being moved around here. So probably a better way to, to actually even, if I were to do the artist V translation, the Ryan Standard version for that, it would be, but I myself, bold, bold print in Yahweh, I myself will rejoice. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yeah, this is, this is a, in spite of all of this, he has this defiant cry of faith that no matter what, is, no matter what will happen to, me, happen to me, I myself will still trust. And the, the redundancy there in the Hebrew is pretty important. Uh, trying to capture the, the really strong, defiant force is, is almost difficult in English. Well, I mean, but, uh, yeah, the, you, you were saying yeah. earlier that the Hebrew poetry is is terse; it's short on purpose. So when they use a word that they don't have to use, it it's important. And I mean, I think that that that's there certainly in, in verse eighteen. Uh, the other the other text that comes to mind with this section of Habakkuk is Philippians chapter four, and we we all know you know Philippians four four rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, but we don't always make it farther and and we usually we know the part in in 413 of that same chapter you know I can do everything through him who gives me strength 
But we forget that part in the middle where, where Paul has his Habakkuk moment about being content even when he's got nothing and, and he's been brought low. And the, the great thing about Habakkuk here is he puts that right up in the front so that you, you have to go through that before you get to the, the rejoicing. And I, I mean, I think this is just so applicable to our lives as Christians. Yeah, and his defiance here. It, it, and yeah, I, I like how you just brought in Philippians because you're right. We, we like this stuff that makes for a good bumper bumper sticker or a T-shirt, and we forget that Paul's whole reason for rejoicing, just like Habakkuk, is the fact that he knows that he's God's child, in spite of everything that he may be experiencing in this mortal life. Mm-hmm. And Philippians is a prison prison letter for crying out loud. Uh, things are not going well for Paul when he writes that. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like just like they're not going well for Habakkuk here, or, or they're about to be going very badly for Habakkuk here, yet he still rejoices. Let's, let's talk about the imagery that's there in verse 19. The ESV reads, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What are the images that Habakkuk's using here in verse 19? Yeah, uh, first he starts out with two divine names for the price of one, which is a big deal here. Uh, so you, your ESV probably has something in small caps. So so we go from Yahweh, God's personal covenantal name, the God who establishes relationships with people because God is a God of mercy who saves. So he goes to not, and, but he's also Adonai. He's also the master, the one in charge. And then we end we move from deprivation to absolute freedom and joy. I mean, the the language of the feet like the deer, I mean, this is where we can, again, savor. And this is why it's been fun to just be able to, to, only, to not have to rush through 15 verses of tough Hebrew and to be able to slow down here. Hmm. But this, this, this confessional statement, he uses the strongest names for God available. So Yahweh Adonai. And being able to, even though he's going to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, which is, it's coming. He's already living there, for crying out loud. He's living in that horrible time of everything falling apart, and why hasn't God stopped it yet? And that's how the book started. For, started Is that this idea of, oh, he, oh, and being able to stride upon the heights, oh, this mountain imagery that also goes with it, uh, this oh, when you talk about mountains in the Bible, so we got the high places here, which oftentimes are not so positive. Here they are, but he's able to be at that meeting place where God is, in that language of the heights. That I mean, the the imagery there again is is so very powerful, and again that I think that we're used defiant. You know, this is a defiant joy that Habakkuk has that even in the face of all of this evil that's coming that he's already experiencing. And it seems at the moment that God's not doing anything, yet he has this this great joy, you know, the feet like the deer, treading on the, the high places in a positive sense. I mean, this is this is just fantastic imagery. We have that that note at the very end, uh, you know, to the choir master with stringed instruments, another indication that we're, we're talking here about uh, a, a psalm, right? This is in a musical context. Dr. Teets, we've got about three minutes on the morning. If you want to comment any on the, the choir master or the stringed instruments, feel free to do so. But as, as we wrap things up, I really want to hear from you again on, on the imagery here and, and particularly how all of this Habakkuk uses finally to point us to our hope, the hope that we have in Christ crucified. Yeah, Habakkuk 3 is a psalm that you and I should be, you and I and our hearers should be praying on a regular basis uh, because it really does 
put our hope and put our perspective where it needs to be. Uh, Habakkuk is wrestling with tough times that are coming, and that's what I love about this book. But when he is given his perspective, namely that God is still in charge, and that evil will be ended, and that this suffering won't last, and that the righteous one is the one who walks by faith, knowing that he's God's child, knowing that God's never going to let him go, because he is that person. He's able to, one, have his moments of standing in awe, the shaking and the quaking that we saw back in verse 16. And because of that, we as Christians, well, to, to use the language of Luther so well, the language of I am baptized, and how defiant of a statement that we have there. Namely, I'm baptized, God, God's not going to let me go. And I'm more than happy to talk more about that as opposed to, to the choir master upon the string instruments. Uh, musical terminology, we never quite know what's going on. But it also does encourage us to actually have a back and be part of their, our own devotions. And I would really invite all of us to use that psalm. Uh, most, most certainly to, to use the psalm and, and to recall with Habakkuk that we belong to the Lord. And, and though no matter what may come, even, even when the answer that the Lord gives is maybe not what we were looking for, that we are in his hands. Uh, I love the language from, from Luther, as you said, I am baptized. That, that is our reality as Christians. And, and that's what Habakkuk points us to here in his psalm in Habakkuk chapter 3. Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets is Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us today with Habakkuk 3, verses 16 to 19. Dr. Teets, thank you so much for being our guest today. Oh, you're welcome, and thanks again for allowing me to journey with you in Habakkuk. God be praised. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Next week, we are picking up the book of Zephaniah. If you have any questions about the prophet Zephaniah, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>